Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 10. I'm always excited to start a new chapter in this study. Last week we finished with the last two verses of chapter 9, somewhat of a summary statement. I'll roll that plant out of the way. Somewhat of a summary statement that, as I declared, was a profound picture of the depravity of man. Even when faced with God's horrible judgments, man yet remained unrepentant. Unrepentant of his idolatry, unrepentant of his immorality. These things will characterize the last days even more so than they do now. Paul the Apostle said that the coming of the man of sin would be preceded by a falling away first. And so the world sees and desires the ushering in of a golden age. You know, they, they see and desire mankind gradually bettering himself and moving toward an evolved state of peace and happiness. But what the Bible presents is quite the opposite. The Bible presents man devolving into idolatry and immorality, spiraling downward just as Israel did in the days of the judges until Jesus Christ Himself returns to put an end to it. There will be no peace on earth until Christ Himself physically and bodily returns to set up a kingdom with a rod of iron. That flies in the face of modern day secular philosophy and it flies in the face of a lot of churchianity philosophy that wants to uh, partner up and play patty cakes with men in their unrepentance. But let's get into chapter 10. Um, With the end of the or with the sixth trumpet, just as earlier with the sixth seal, there comes what I believe is another parenthesis in the chronology of Revelation. I've got this outline here I made for you of chapter 10 and 11. Let's just start at the top. These two chapters, I believe, perform, uh, uh, form another backdrop to the actual narrative That's advancing as we move along. It's a behind-the-scenes look, just like chapter 7, at events spanning the judgments. And these behind-the-scenes looks again affirm that God reserves unto Himself a witness and a testimony, and He's still working toward the salvation of men. Like what we saw in chapter 7, Chapter 10 and the great part of chapter 11 does not advance the narrative chronologically, but it presents other facts which contribute to the entire prophetic scene. We see a scene with a mighty angel and a little book, which I believe are key to understanding the culmination of all these things. We, we have a statement about the burden that John and those moving forward over the centuries of the church age would have preaching these judgments. We get a glimpse or a picture of the tribulation temple in Israel, confirming that Israel will again have a temple, and that temple, like in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, like in the days of of, of Rome, will be destroyed. And we get a picture of God's two special witnesses that will be engaged in a bold street preaching ministry during the tribulation, particularly to the people of Israel. But we have a pattern in the book of Revelation. It's not a series of random judgments or random visions that John just chose to write down. There's a pattern and a structure. When God reveals Himself, He always does it decently and in order. Quite the contrast to what was revealed to Muhammad when he has his visions and then those visions were transcribed by people as he uttered them, oftentimes in a state as described by the people who wrote them down that looked a whole lot like the demoniac in the Gospels than someone like John who's writing with a sound mind. It's often said that it was noted that when Muhammad would have these visions, he would shake uncontrollably and 
he would foam at the mouth and he would fall down and they would just lay a sheet over him. And when he came to, he would utter uh, in a very strange way what had been given to him. And as you read the Quran, there's no pattern, there's no order, there's no organization. It's random and it often contradicts itself and successive visions go back and change what was given earlier. When God reveals Himself, it's decent and in order. And Revelation's not random. There's a pattern here. Okay? We have the first six seal judgments in chapter 6. Then we get to chapter 7, a parenthesis. What does chapter 7 reveal? It reveals 144,000 Jewish witnesses followed by the fruit of their ministry, which are redeemed Gentile witnesses. So in the midst of God's judgment, we have a witness. 144,000 of Israel and the fruits of their ministry, the tribulation saints. Then we get into chapter 8 and the chronology resumes. Six trumpet judgments. And near the end of the sixth trumpet judgment, we have another parenthesis. What is this parenthesis? Right here in chapter 10 and chapter 11. What do we learn about as we read and study these chapters? We learn about prophecies witness throughout the church age. Given to John, the same prophecy that must again be declared before many prophets, I mean between, before many kings and nations before it comes to pass. And it has been throughout the church age. And then we get a glimpse of God's two special witnesses that will be involved actively during these days of tribulation until they are martyred, resurrected, and raptured, coinciding with the end of the sixth trumpet. So again, the focus of the parenthesis is God's testimony or His witness. Then we get into chapters 11, chapter 11, and then on through 15 and 16, we have the six vile judgments. Now chapters 12, 13, and 14 are also another parenthesis that show us some of the major characters, spiritual characters that are in play during this time. But we have the six vile judgments. And at the end of the sixth vile judgment, we have another small parenthesis that again deals with testimony. These witnesses, however, are not Jewish. They're not tribulation saints. They're not street preachers. They're demonic witnesses that go out, spirits like frogs that go out uh, from the beast and the false prophet to bear witness of things that will ultimately gather the kings of the earth together and bring them to the place already prophesied to war against the Lamb at Armageddon. And then you have the seventh vial after that parenthesis which is the conclusion of all things uh, at which time Christ returns to set up a kingdom. And so, there are, there's this pattern. A parenthesis is given after six of the judgments that focuses upon a witness or a testimony. So as we look at chapters 10 and 11, the key here is the witness or testimony of God's truth even during terrible days of darkness and divine judgment. That witness can come through the redeemed of the Lord, it certainly comes through the ministry of street preaching, although much of the church today would say that's impossible. What we're going to read about in chapter 11 are the ministries of two street preachers. And it can even come through a demonic witness. Even the demons know who Christ is. And if you read the Gospels, oftentimes they would follow Christ and declare plainly what Christ Himself wouldn't even declare plainly because the people should have known. They declared plainly things about the nature of Jesus that even the church won't declare today. So even evil is a witness to the truth because God governs all. I talked last week at the end about how God's never left Himself without witness. Acts tells us He gives even the unjust and the idolatrous rain and fruitful seasons and things that are evidence or testimony of Him. Amos tells us He never pronounces judgment without warning. And that's what these chapters exist to do. Judgment, warning ahead of judgment. And then at the end of chapter 11, we, we, we have the ministry of these two witnesses summarized and then it telescopes to the end of their testimony. And the end of their testimony, when they are martyred, when they are left to lie in the streets for three days, 
when they are resurrected and when they are raptured actually coincides chronologically with the end of the second woe, which is the end of the second trumpet. So at the end of chapter 9, the second trumpet judgment is practically done, but it awaits one small event, and that's the great earthquake that, that uh, um, happens or coincides with the rapture of those two witnesses. So that demonic cavalry, that, that devilish cavalry that slays a fourth of men is culminated by the rapture of the two witnesses and the end of the sixth trumpet. So we're still in the sixth trumpet, but chapter 10 is going to go back and, and chapter 11 is going to look at some things happening behind the scenes with regard to God's witness or testimony. Okay? Does that make sense? Now I want to look for just a minute at a map. I'm going to draw a little map here of the um, tribulation period so we can, can understand what's going on when we get into chapter 11. And we'll look at it again. But the tribulation period is a period of seven years. And it's what is, Daniel refers to as a, the 70th week in terms of God's dealing with Israel. We talked about how between Daniel's 69th and 70th week, there's been a gap. Okay, The 69th week ended with Messiah the Prince, which was Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cries of Hosanna in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. It happened exactly 69 weeks of years, uh, in solar years and calendar years, in terms of um, uh, the start of that prophecy, which was the declaration of the king of Persia to allow Nehemiah and those to go back and uh, rebuild the city. So we have this 70th week that begins when Antichrist signs a treaty with the people of Israel, a treaty that promises peace. Okay, Antichrist will rise to power. He will confirm a covenant with the people of Israel and that's what starts the 70th week. In the midst of the week, Daniel tells us in chapter 9, Antichrist breaks that treaty and he betrays Israel. And what follows is three and a half years of very intense persecution against the Jewish people. A persecution the likes of which has not been seen. Okay? And so oftentimes the last half of the tribulation is referred to particularly by Jesus as the great tribulation. So for the first part, Israel is deceived into following a false Messiah. At the midpoint, He reveals Himself. And during the last part, they are persecuted horribly. Okay? Now, it says when we get into chapter 11 and John sees the temple in Jerusalem... He is told to not measure the court because the temple is given to be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles for 42 months. Well, what is 42 months? 12, 24, 36, plus 6 is 42. Three and a half years, the temple will be trodden underfoot. That begins when Antichrist breaks the treaty, goes into the temple and sets himself up as God, and it is trodden underfoot. Three and a half years... 42 months. The first uh, half of the tribulation when Israel is deceived into thinking this is their Messiah will be a period of 42 months. Okay? Then it tells us that the ministry of the two witnesses is not for 42 months, but that it is for 1,260 days. What is 1,260 days in terms of a 30-day month, as is uh, the length of a month on a Jewish calendar, it's three and a half years. Okay? So it's often assumed that the ministry of the, the, three, the two witnesses begins at the midpoint of the tribulation and it ends right when Christ comes back and so that chapter 11 is at the end. I don't believe that. I believe that the, the ministry is indeed three and a half years, but I it's not spoken of in months uh, in terms of the, of the temple. So we're talking about a period that overlaps. And so the ministry of the, the two witnesses and the 
is begins sometime in the beginning 42 months and it ends sometime in the latter 42 months ending with the fulfillment or the completion of the sixth trumpet judgment so we have a period of overlapping here okay you have the 144,000 sealed before the first trumpet remember the angels were told to hold back and don't hurt anything on the earth until the servants are sealed this happens very soon after the rapture out of this sealing God's witnesses come forth and have a street preaching ministry in Jerusalem for three and a half years and that ends with the sixth trumpet okay so we are somewhere in this latter half of the tribulation and this ministry will bridge both halves for a period of 1260 days okay that's kind of what's happening here and so with the sixth trumpet we're somewhere on this timeline the seventh trumpet we're going to learn ushers in the seven vials and we're going to learn in chapter 10 that when the seventh trumpet begins to sound what's going to happen is going to happen very quickly so we're not talking about years anymore we're talking about maybe months but certainly just days okay so we are toward the end but not the end because this ministry overlaps that's why the trotting underfoot of the temple is spoken of as in months and the ministry of the two witnesses is spoken of as in days one overlaps the other two periods okay so that's just kind of a map of where we are chapter 11 does go with chapter 10 why does it go with chapter 10? The end of chapter 11 does advance the narrative and go with the end of chapter 9, but it also goes with the parenthesis because in this encounter between John and the mighty angel, John is told to do three things. Number one, he's told to seal up what he hears spoken by seven thunders. That's in verse 4. Number two, he's told to eat the little book that is in the hand of the mighty angel. And then number three, the very first couple of verses in chapter 11, he is told to measure the tribulation temple. So we can't separate these things. They go together. Also, the mighty angel uh, revealed in chapter 10 speaks of, continues to speak to John in chapter 11 and says, Behold, I will send my two witnesses. So the one speaking or, or, or revealed in chapter 10 is speaking in chapter 11. So these go together. They don't necessarily advance the narrative until we get to the place where it says these witnesses have finished their testimony. And that coincides with the end of what we had in chapter 9. Okay, I think these things are easily discerned if you just study and pay attention not just to verses but to words. Okay, and remember that the verses and the chapters weren't put in the New Testament when it was written. Those came later. Uh, in the, uh, by, I think they were added by one of the... The chapters were added by uh, one of the men that was faithful in helping preserve the uh, pure line of text during the days of Reformation, and then the verses came later. And we're thankful for those tools. Okay, Those tools have been very helpful to saints for many years in memorizing Scriptures and locating things in Scriptures. But when Revelation was given and John wrote it down, there wasn't a division per se. Okay, the context, okay, and the paragraphs and things are what indicated um, chronological flow. So I think these things are easily discerned if we just study the scriptures and let scripture interpret scripture. They may not, they may be veiled, but they are there if we'll study to show ourselves approved to God, as the Bible says. So. The end of Revelation 11 coincides with the end of Revelation 9 in terms of chronology. Have I lost you or are you following along? Okay. So, the focus of these chapters is testimony. Testimony even in the midst of judgment. First, I want to look at the testimony of the mighty angel that is revealed here at the beginning of chapter 10. Let's read the first seven verses so John has 
spoken at the end of uh, chapter 9 about the unrepentant state of men. He's talked about this demonic cavalry that destroys a quarter of the earth's population after uh, a, 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 a locust army has tormented men for five months. It was a third of the population, not a fourth. It's the fourth that's destroyed back with the fourth seal judgment. I've got that backwards, forgive me. A third is destroyed by the uh, sixth trumpet. And now we come to chapter 10, the beginning of this parenthesis. John says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write... And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer." But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, that's the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And so here we have a testimony. A testimony of a mighty angel. A testimony accompanied by the voices of seven thunders that John is forbidden to write down. And the testimony of the angel's words. Okay, His pledge with a foot on the land and a foot on the sea. His pledge before God that there will be no more delay. The mystery of God will now be finished. Okay? Let's consider a minute the identity of this angel. John says he sees a mighty angel come down from heaven and then he describes this angel. I think we have similar descriptions in other places in the Old and New Testament that make it very clear who this mighty angel is and what he's doing or what this scene is depicting. Okay? It says he was clothed with a cloud. Let's look up some verses this morning. Let's get some participation from the men here. Um, Ricky, look up Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Jason, Matthew 24, 30. Um, Daniel, Matthew 26, 64. Jim, Revelation 1, 7. And Ronnie, Revelation 14, 14. Clothed with a cloud. Go ahead with the Daniel passage. Okay, Daniel has a vision, a night vision of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. There in the Hebrew, that imagery coming with connotes being clothed with the clouds of heaven. And this Son of Man is given a kingdom. This is one of the primary messianic passages of the Old Testament. Even the Jews see this passage and say that is referring to Messiah. Our Messiah will come with the clouds of heaven and He will receive a kingdom. Now, when Jesus was on trial, He was asked, are you indeed the Messiah? Are you indeed the Son of God? And He says, well, you're, you say so, if you say so, but I will tell you this, that the day is coming when you will see the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven. Jesus identified Himself as the one being spoken of in Daniel 7. And then what did they do? 
they went into a rage. What further witness do we have? He's witnessed against himself. Blasphemy, blasphemy. Then they crucified him. This is a reference to Messiah. He's clothed with the clouds of heaven. He's coming with the clouds of heaven to receive a kingdom. So being clothed with clouds is associated with the Messiah in the primary passage referring to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay? What about the next passage, Matthew 24, 30? Jesus refers to that day as a day when all the earth will mourn because the Son of Man will come clothed with the clouds of heaven. Coming with, is it connotes being clothed. It comes with Him. Just like I'm coming to you today with a pair of slacks and a sweater. I'm clothed with these things. Okay? Matthew 26, 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's what I was just referring to. That was Jesus giving testimony at His trial. And it sent the uh, people into a rage. So anytime a Muslim says, Jesus never claimed to be Messiah, or Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, he's very foolish because why then would the Jews want to crucify Him? They hated him because he made himself equal with God. That's why they sought to stone him. Okay? But then they were too chicken to stone him because they knew it would upset the Romans. So they went to Pilate and kissed up to him and convinced him to crucify him so that what was prophesied about Messiah would be fulfilled. But again, coming with the clouds of heaven. Revelation 1 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Okay? He doesn't come in a secret place. He doesn't show up in a cardboard box living on the street. He doesn't show up in the desert where you have to go find him. He comes with the clouds of heaven. He's clothed with the clouds something that could not be said of concerning any man or any mere man. And in Revelation 14, 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat, like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Okay, this is another parenthetical passage that we're going to see later compares and contrasts two gatherings. One gathering is affected by the Son of Man sitting on a cloud. That gathering is the gathering of the church at the rapture. The second gathering is the gathering of the wicked to a place called Armageddon where the blood will flow even to the horse's bridles. But again, Messiah is spoken of here as the Son of Man who is uh, 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 seated upon a cloud or a white cloud. So in multiple places we have Messiah, Jesus, associated with the clouds of heaven. Here we have a mighty angel clothed with the cloud. Okay? I think you know his identity. But let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. It says he was clothed with the cloud and a rainbow was upon his head. What was the rainbow given in Genesis chapter 9? After the flood to Noah. It was a token of the covenant between God and men. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, John is raptured into the throne room of, of heaven. A picture or a type of the church's rapture just at the end of the church age, at the precise place in the book of Revelation where chronologically it will happen as these things are fulfilled. And when he was catapulted into heaven in the throne room of God, he saw a throne set in heaven and one sitting on the throne... And then there was a rainbow about that throne. Well, what does that rainbow about the throne in the throne room of God where the church is present as we see later in four, chapters 4 and 5? It's a sign or a token that the storm is over for the church. Okay? The storm is over for the church. Here in chapter 10, a rainbow is upon the head of this mighty angel. 
was we began to read and we see Daniel's very similar vision in Daniel's cha- Daniel chapter um, 10, 11, and 12. We'll see that this rainbow connotes that the storm isn't, isn't just over for the church, it's over for Israel. The storm's over. This angel, this mighty angel, is tied to the end of the time of Jacob's trouble. The storm was over for the church in chapter 4. She's in heaven. Now we see the storm is quickly coming to its conclusion with regard to the nation of Israel. So keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, Clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was upon his head. His face was as it were the sun. Um... Hmm. Daddy, would you look up uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2? Ricky, I'll go back to you. Revelation 1.16 and uh, Jason, Matthew 17.2. Face as it were the sun. Yeah, I'm ready. But unto you that fear my name shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the star. Right there, Messiah is spoken of as the Son, S-U-N, the Son of righteousness that will arise with healing in his wings. To whom? To whom? Those that fear his name. Those that fear his name out of the remnant of Israel. Malachi was written to the children of Israel in the days after they had returned to the land. And God promised them that unto the remnant of Israel that fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. The Son of Righteousness is Messiah who comes to save Israel at the end of this time of Jacob's trouble. He is spoken of as the Son, S-U-N of Righteousness in Malachi. And yet here in chapter 10 of Revelation, this mighty angel... His face is as it were the sun. Revelation 1.16 In Revelation chapter 1, John's vision of Jesus Christ is as He relates to the church. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, which are the angels of the seven churches, And this vision of Christ as relates to the church also declares that His countenance was as the sun. His countenance is as the sun for the church. It is as the sun for the nation of Israel and its remnant. Okay? Matthew 17, 2. When Jesus Christ was transfigured for before three of His closest disciples, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, His face was as it were the sun. Exactly what is described here in Revelation chapter 10. And then finally it says in verse 1, His feet were as pillars of fire. Clothed with a cloud, rainbow was upon His head, face as the sun, and feet as pillars of fire. Okay? This is a symbol of judgment. Fire is a purifying thing. Okay? It destroys the chaff and it refines the precious metals. A symbol of judgment. If we go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, back to that same vision of Christ as relates to the church, John said, And his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Okay? So, His feet were fiery and refined as if they burned in a furnace in chapter 1. Here, His feet are as pillars of fire. There's a very interesting verse tucked in the Torah of the Old Testament that is just kind of stuck in there. And it often gets overlooked. I've certainly never heard it preached about. And we often hear in the Old Testament, you know, no man has seen God and nobody could look on God and God... You know, Moses only saw his backside and we, we understand that was in... You know, Moses couldn't look upon him in his full glory. But tucked in all of this in Exodus chapter 24, starting with verse 9, is a little interesting scene. Okay? As Moses is being called up to the mount along with Arab, I mean Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, his sons who were the priests, and 
the elders of Israel, it said, said that these came up to the mount um, and they had a meal together. And it says in Exodus 24 verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw Him. They saw the God of Israel. And then it describes Him. And there was under His feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. And as it were, the body of heaven in His clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, He laid not His hand. Also they saw God, and they did eat and drink. And then Moses, of course, was, is told to come up into the mount, and God would give him the tables of stone, and he would write these statutes and judgments down, and he would bring them back and teach the people. So the elders of Israel saw the God of Israel. They at least saw His feet. And what was under His feet was a paved work of sapphire stone that was clear. What's the only element that can take a gemstone in its raw form and make it clear? Fire. So under the feet was a paved work of sapphire stone. The feet, therefore, were fiery. Fiery enough to refine that. The elders of Israel saw the God of Israel. The God of Israel had feet that refined even uh, so that whatever was under it was refined into clearness. The work of fire. Who is the God of Israel? The God of Israel is Jehovah Elohim. The God of Israel is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And as regards God the Son, His feet are as a furnace of fire that refines, burns up the chaff and refines just as the feet of the God of Israel refined whatever was underneath them in those moments so that it was as a paved work of a sapphire stone. I find it interesting that these elders saw God and it says they ate and drank. They ate and drank. Did the things we do here. That may, that's a picture, I believe, of a small picture of, I believe, life in the eternal state in the presence of God. So we have feet as refining fire associated with the God of Israel and associated with Jesus Christ in his relationship to the church. Who therefore is this mighty angel? I believe it's Jesus Christ. Why is He spoken of, however, at this point in the book as an angel and not as described earlier in Revelation chapter 1? Well, at this point in the narrative, Revelation is mainly going to be dealing or is mainly dealing with Israel. And we will see that in chapter 11. We will see that through the ministry of the two witnesses dealing with Israel. So when dealing with Israel, this description is to be expected. In fact, as you read and study the New Testament, Jesus the Christ makes an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance numerous times. And when He does, He is spoken of as the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord reveals Himself in the Old Testament, it's always in relationship to Israel. So why wouldn't He be spoken of as a mighty angel right here in Revelation? Let's consider a few passages from the Old Testament. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, it's the angel of the Lord that called out to Abraham and told him to spare from slaying his son right there on Mount Moriah where the temple was later built and where it will be rebuilt, the center of Israel as a nation. If you go to Exodus chapter 2, it was the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. In Numbers 22, it was the angel of the Lord that stood in the way to slay Balaam. And even Balaam's ass saw this angel and tried to protect his rider. And, and the prophet was too blind to see. In Joshua chapter 5, this angel of the Lord is described as the captain of the Lord's host. And Joshua says, are you for us or are you for them? And the, and the captain's response is, I am the captain. I am for me. It's not, are we on, whose side is God's on, God on? The question is, are you on the Lord's side? Okay. You know, um, I think in the days of the Civil War, um, 
a young a lady approached the president as he was making a public appearance, President Lincoln, and said, Mr. Lincoln, whose side has God on in this war? Because it had drug on for years and there was no clear victory. And his response was, ma'am, I'm not concerned with whose side God is on, but whether or not we as a nation are on God's side. And I try to think of our president or our, our, our governmental leaders making a statement like that today, and it just doesn't even equate. Something like that couldn't even come out of their mouths, I don't think. Unbelievable. Turn to Judges chapter 2. Here's an interesting little passage at the beginning of the narrative of the Judges. Joshua has died. And here the angel of the Lord appears to Israel. And it's not an appearance unto salvation, it's an appearance unto rebuke. Judges chapter 2, verse 1, And the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Okay? So we have an, the angel of the Lord speaking of my covenant. I will never break. Okay? I brought you out. So this is obviously the Lord. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be as a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. Okay, Then it goes on to tell us about the death of Joshua. Actually, Joshua was, was alive here when this happened. But there was a rebuke because Israel did not obey what God had said, and that was to completely drive out some of the inhabitants of the land. But even that was fulfillment of prophecy that had been given earlier to Moses that God would leave them there to test them through the years. So all of this was fulfillment of prophecy. But the angel of the Lord came and rebuked Israel. Okay? Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and raises him up to deliver Israel. Judges chapter 13. It's the angel of the Lord that comes and announces to Manoah and his wife the birth of Samson and how he would deliver Israel. Israel. In the life of David, David made a very foolish mistake and he persisted to number the people of Israel to take a census of the men of war so that his comfort and his security could be found in numbers and not in the Lord. Something that they were not supposed to do according to the law. Even Joab, who had his own problems, warned David that this was foolish and didn't fully report all the people because he knew it was not of the Lord. But when uh, David was judged by God, he was given three choices because of his disobedience. I'll send three years of famine. You'll flee from your enemies for three months. Or three days, a pestilence will fall upon the people at the hands of my, my own, at my own hand. David very wisely said, look, I'm just going to fall upon the mercy of the Lord. You do the judgment instead of doing it through men. And so what happens is the angel of the Lord took up a sword and went through Israel for three days. And I believe it was, um, was 70,000 that died in that plague. And the angel of the Lord came to a spot in Jerusalem, the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. The Jebusites lived in present-day Jerusalem. Okay, that's where their city was. Jebus. Okay, and the angel of the Lord stayed his hand on this threshing floor, and the judgment came to an end. And then David ended up purchasing that threshing floor from that Jebusite man, and that became the location for the temple. So it was the same place that Abraham offered up his son is where the angel of the Lord stayed his hand in judgment against Israel. So we have the angel of the Lord acting to save Israel, acting to rebuke her, and acting to judge her. 1 Kings 19, the angel of the Lord himself ministered to Elijah as he fled from Jezebel. In 2 Kings 19, the angel of the Lord went into the army 
of the Syrians and slew 185,000 okay, to save Israel from her enemies. Psalm 34.7 says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about those that fear Him, particularly with regard to God's people Israel and also, obviously, with regard to us as partakers of the Abrahamic covenant through faith. Zechariah has a couple of interesting passages about the angel of the Lord as relates even to the last days we're reading about in Revelation. Zechariah, let's turn there for a moment. Zechariah 3, verse 1. This is in the midst of Zechariah's ten visions that are given to him concerning a variety of topics. Here he has a vision, I believe it's the fifth vision in chapter 3 of Joshua who was the high priest in that day. And this was after Israel had returned from Babylon and it was in the days of uh, the post-exilic days uh, when they were trying to rebuild uh, the temple and things were continuing down. I believe this was about, this was after, uh, I believe this was after the rebuilding of the temple. Um, Zechariah was a prophet to the remnant. It says, and he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Okay, so the angel of the Lord stands with Joshua in the presence of Satan who's trying to cause a problem here, um, to resist what God purposed to do with Jerusalem and with the people of Israel. Okay? And Joshua, having returned with the remnant, now the office of the high priest back where it should be, stood as a testimony that God was going to fulfill His purpose for Jerusalem. And right there was the angel of the Lord tied uh, to that particular topic in God's prophetic timetable. Zechariah 12 very interesting. Because here we have the identity of the angel of the Lord given. Here we find out just who he is near the end of the Old Testament. Just like at the end of Revelation, I mean, in, at the end of the Bible in Revelation in chapter 12, we actually find out, it's actually declared the identity of the dragon or Satan. It's, he's declared to be the serpent from the Garden of Eden, although we already know that. We're already able to read between the lines throughout Scripture. But in Revelation 12, he is declared to be that same person. Here in Zechariah 12, the angel of the Lord is declared to be uh, a specific person, even though we know him to be by reading between the lines. Chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, this is when Christ returns to save Jerusalem from destruction and to save Israel from annihilation. Armageddon, later in chapter 14 of Zechariah, he describes in detail the battle of Armageddon. Even more detail than what's given in Revelation. The Lord shall defend the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Okay? He that is feeble among them shall be as the house of David, and the house of David will be God and the angel of the Lord. What does that mean? That means Messiah is God. Messiah is the angel of the Lord. Messiah is of the house of David. Messiah will come from the house of David. Even the Jewish people know this. And here the house of David is described as God and the angel of the Lord. Why? Because Messiah is God. He is the angel of the Lord. And it's in direct relationship to the salvation of Israel 
and Jerusalem at the time of the end. Exactly what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 10. So all of this imagery in the Old Testament is angel of the Lord as relates to Israel. So here in Revelation 10, Messiah is described as a mighty angel. And it would be expected to be so. For scriptures are consistent. Jesus Christ in behalf of His church is the bridegroom. What is the church? The mystery of the church is Jew and Gentile together. The bride of Christ. Why we separate fellowships, messianic congregations, Gentile congregations, white churches, black churches, Asian churches, I don't understand. The mystery is the oneness. I understand that language causes a problem sometimes and it's, you have to separate so people can understand. But obviously it didn't keep the mixed multitude from coming together in Corinth. That was the whole issue with tongues that Paul had to address is people would just stand up and blab something in their language that other people in there wouldn't understand because they didn't speak that language and nobody was taking time to even interpret it. So it wasn't edifying. That's another matter. But Jesus Christ in behalf of His church is the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Jesus Christ in behalf of Israel is a mighty angel. He's Messiah. It's interesting, we know very clearly who this mighty angel is when we go to chapter 11. Look at verse 3. And I, who is I? I, as we will see at the end of chapter 10, is this mighty angel that John sees. I will give power unto my two witnesses. Not just an angel. Not just a ministering spirit sent from God. This is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ on behalf of Israel. We've already seen Him on behalf of the church in chapter 1. The church's job is done. It's in heaven. God is turning His attention again to Israel. And the mighty angel is revealed here to John. Okay? Um, I'm probably going to end here in just a moment. But we have the identity of the angel. And then look at point B under uh, Roman numeral 1. Let's look for a minute at the little book, verse 2. This mighty angel, whom we've identified as Christ in his relationship to Israel, he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now, let's jump back a couple of chapters. I want to remind you of a scene we studied earlier in chapter 5. Daniel, would you read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7? And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and, the, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. The seven-sealed book, the title deed of the earth, no one worthy but the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes and takes this book, a, a great seven-sealed scroll, out of the hands of God. Obviously something big. Okay? Then if we go to the verse, first verse of chapter uh, 6, we see the Lamb open the book. Okay? He opens the seal. What happens? The first seal judgment. So what we have here, here's this 
uh, seven sealed scroll. We have this great scroll here. Okay, we have the first seal opened. Here, I'll let you hold that. Second seal opened. Here you go. Third seal. Fourth seal. I don't think these are in the right order. What's happening to this book? Getting smaller. Sixth seal. Now, go to chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal. So now the seventh seal is open. These seals, these scrolls are unraveled, and what we're at now is the core of it. Okay? How does this relate to what I held in my hand when I first started opening it? It's a little smaller, right? A little smaller. Well, the seventh seal is opened. In chapter 8, what is the seventh seal? It is the seven trumpets. We're at the end of the trumpets. And what we're going to find out right here, very shortly, the seventh, at the end of, um, I think it's at the end of chapter um, 11, the seventh trumpet is going to sound. What's the seventh trumpet? It's seven vile judgments that happen very quickly. So we're at the end or toward the end of these things. The book has been opened. The seals have been removed. And what was a great seven-sealed scroll in the hand of the Lamb obviously is smaller now. And it's opened. Keep that imagery in mind. What was the seven-sealed scroll we talked about? The title deed of the earth that Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, purchased at the cross and now He's going to come to claim the title deed the stewardship of the earth given to Adam, but Adam sold his birthright to Satan just like Esau who despised his birthright and hastily got rid of it. Okay? Satan has therefore been the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world. But now it's time for the kinsman redeemer who judged Satan at the cross to claim what is rightfully his and has been his all along. Okay? So, John sees... With this imagery in mind, and, and having been reminded of these things, John sees in the hand of this mighty angel a little book open, and his right foot is on the sea and his left foot on the earth. Well, what's that all about? Well, if he's got a foot on the sea and a foot on the land, as he's holding this book, and later as he'll make a pledge in chapter 10, then obviously this book is somehow connected with the authority to claim the sea and to claim the land. Well, we know the title deed of the earth bears that authority. We know it does. But little could, is, is, is what we read about in um, chapter 4 and 5, really a, just a little book described here in chapter 10. People have often looked at this verse and said, well, this is something different because that was a great scroll and this is just a little book open. Well... At this point in the narrative, it would be small because a lot of the judgments have come to pass. Seven seals have been opened. Six of the trumpets are basically fulfilled. Most of the judgments are fulfilled and all that remains is a short time. And we're going to see that in what this angel says. No longer delay. Time no longer. In other words, no more delay. What's been prophesied is coming to pass. So it makes sense that this little book would be little because all that remains at this point in the narrative is a little while. I believe this little book open is the title deed of the earth. And what John sees here is Jesus Christ with His foot on the land and on the sea. Those things that He has the authority to claim holding this little book. And this image is a public declaration of what is written therein. Public reading of that title deed and the authority to claim it. It's related to all of that we studied in chapters 4 and 5. Turn for a minute and we'll end with this today. Isaiah chapter 10. And again, the focus here is on Israel even though it would apply to the entire world and the judgments that happen as a result of the evils and wickedness of this whole world. But the whole world is tied to Israel, my friends. That's the way God purposed it. It's always been this way. 
and always will be. Isaiah chapter 10. And God is talking about the persecution of Israel here. Okay? Persecution from the Assyrian initially fulfilled in what they were experiencing in the days of Isaiah, ultimately fulfilled in Antichrist. Antichrist here is called the Assyrian. Okay? But let's read a few verses from Isaiah 10. Let's start with verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. So we're talking about a day when Israel had placed, placed its faith and trust and its hope in one that ended up smiting them. Well, obviously that's what Antichrist does. They follow him as a Messiah only to be betrayed by him. And, and God is saying here that the day will come when Israel will no longer trust in that, but will truly, um, there will be a remnant that will return and truly trust in the mighty God. Verse 22, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord, the God of hosts, shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. Therefore thus saith the God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He's speaking to the remnant. Be not afraid of Antichrist. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The anointing of who? The anointing of Messiah. Okay, so here we have Israel... The remnant, it's declared that there will be a remnant, even in these days, and for the remnant not to fear the Antichrist, for his indignation and the judgment that comes with him is but for a little while. Just a little while, and the indignation shall cease. And Israel's enemies will be overthrown. Antichrist will be overthrown by Messiah the kinsman redeemer who possesses the title deed of the earth. Now Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 9 talking about um, the remnant of Israel. Why we as the church should not despise them. As for the gospel, they are enemies. But as for God's election, they are beloved. And therefore we should love them. Regardless of whether they love us, regardless of what they say or do about Jesus in this present time, in this present dispensation. They are beloved of the Father because of the election. And so Paul talks about their rebellion, their judgment, just a little while and it will cease. And so in this context, a little book means a little while with regard to the people of Israel. And it's interesting because... Um, in Revelation 5, the lamb that comes forward is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay? And um, later, um, it says in verse 3 that this mighty angel in chapter 10 of Revelation, it says in verse 3, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And so again, his voice is tied back to what we see with the Lamb and the title deed of the earth. So this little book is little now because most of the judgments have been fulfilled and what remains is only a little while. Israel will be delivered, Messiah will come, and wickedness shall be overthrown. Christ, a vision here, His public claim of possession with the proof of it in hand. What is the proof? The title deed. The little, that is now a little book because what remains is a little while. 
Next Sunday, we'll talk about what happens uh, when this angel lifts up his voice and presents himself uh, uh, on the land and in the sea with this little book. We're going to read about what happens. And this is going to get into a little bit into the mystery of God. Okay? A mystery is something that only, is only spoken of in the New Testament. It's from the Greek word that we get mystery. It appears, I think, 28 times in the New Testament, but it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. A mystery is something that is veiled in the Old Testament and declared in the New Testament. It's something that is understood by those that fear the Lord, not understood by those that are without. And in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, in the days when this public proclamation of what's contained in the title deed deed is declared, the mystery of God will be finished. So it might help you just to do a little word study next week. Look up the different uses of the word mystery in the New Testament. There's a lot of mysteries. Mysteries that are mysteries to people that are babes in Christ or that are lost, but to those of us that study the Scriptures, even though we may not understand every detail, they have been made manifest through the Word of God and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So we'll get into that next week, the mystery of God. And then we'll start looking at the testimony of John here. John is a testimony for us in, these, in this parenthesis. His, his obedience is a testimony. What he's told to do is a testimony. And what he's told to measure is a testimony. So we may move pretty slow, but there's a lot of good stuff here. And uh, it ties very neatly to a lot that is revealed about these days in the Old Testament, particularly with regard to Israel.